Welcome to the Leadership Disrupted Podcast. This is Dan Rust. In today's episode, we're going to be focused on a core leadership responsibility, fostering a culture of inclusion and belonging throughout your team, your department, your organization. Over the past decades, there has been a shift in the mindset of most business leaders from rarely, if ever, thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, social justice, to slowly and not steadily beginning to see these issues as relevant to their corporate cultures. Today's episode is from a presentation I delivered recently to a group of global HR and business leaders about the changes I'm seeing in the DEI landscape. The executive summary is this. Prior to May of 2020, there was slow but real progress on the DEI front in the corporate world. Then in the U.S., the murder of George Floyd and all of the ensuing protests prompted a global intensity of new DEI-focused initiatives, new chief diversity officers, new priorities, and especially new budgets. A lot of commitments were made and a lot of activity started to occur. But in the past six months, I've started to see that intensity fade. Budgets are being reduced but not in big, obvious ways. Chief diversity officers, when they leave organizations to take on similar roles elsewhere, are often seeing that their old positions are downgraded to a VP or a director level, no longer directly reporting into the C-suite, but now being part of the HR organization. And in this session with global leaders, I discussed what I see as root causes and what we can or should do about it. I'm having conversations every week with individuals who are responsible for diversity education initiatives within their organizations. I talk to chief diversity officers. I talk to directors of diversity, directors of culture, uh, whatever the titles may be. Every week I'm having these conversations. So I do feel like I'm in a somewhat unique spot to uh, keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the real world of DEI in, in the corporate world, in the, in, in the corporate space. And so um, in that real world, one of the things I have noticed, because I've had people you know, ask questions about, hey, what do I see shifting in, in, the, in the DEI landscape? And I started to use this term third wave DEI um, as a way of acknowledging that um, there have been significant waves of progress, waves of activity. And I'm going to walk you through, uh, just to, to, to set the foundation, to set the context, I'm going to walk you through what I refer to as wave one and wave two before we get to wave three. And, you know, full transparency, these are, these are just, you know, personal uh, uh, perspectives. Um, it is my way of thinking. It's what I'm personally observing. So I don't have some huge research base to back this up. It's just, again, when I see, keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening, this is what this is what I've seen and experienced, and this is what I'm seeing and, and experiencing right now as, as we speak. So to talk first about wave one, we do have to go back a, a ways. Um, what I call wave one of workplace diversity training began in the United States in the 1960s. And for those of you who are who are global and 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 you're joining beyond uh, the United States, um, I'm, I just want to say I, I I openly acknowledge 
my point of view tends to be a U.S. centric point of view because that's that's where my experience lies. So I'm going to speak mostly to that. Although I do think much of what I'm sharing with you is reflected globally as well. The timelines may be slightly different, but but certainly uh, what's happened is is still relevant. Um, in the 1960s, as a reaction to the civil rights movement, the protests and demonstrations, and the national media attention that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it became illegal for businesses with more than 15 employees to discriminate based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And according to the law, as it was written, they couldn't discriminate in hiring, termination, promotion, compensation, job training or any other uh, what was called term, condition, or privilege of employment. But of course, many businesses did discriminate, and a large number of discrimination lawsuits were filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the United States. This resulted in severe financial penalties and the EEOC requiring that the sanctioned organizations train all of their employees in anti-discriminatory behavior. And then at that point, the workplace diversity training movement was essentially born. Um, now, to be fair, there certainly had been some workplace diversity and racial sensitivity training before this, um, but not on a large scale. But in the US military, uh, if you, those of you who are of an age where you either can remember back or you, you are familiar with the era, this was the Vietnam era, War era. And the US military essentially needed thousands of poor black and white soldiers to work together. So they employed what they called encounter groups at the platoon level um, with essentially this message. Hey, you work together to combat a common enemy or you die. That, that essentially was the message. And it was perhaps the largest scale diversity education experiment ever conducted. And it was to a large degree successful. It, it turns out the threat of death is a diversity training motivator when you're a soldier in the trenches in, in Vietnam. But the non-military workplace diversity training, it wasn't just driven by companies that were being sanctioned by the EEOC. It was all the other companies that wanted to avoid the severe penalties and sanctions. And so naturally, most of the initial diversity training efforts in the 60s centered on legislation and compliance. Obviously, companies wanted to avoid costly and embarrassing lawsuits and negative publicity. And so many voluntarily implemented training focused on imparting information on the legal requirements to their managers and their rank and file employees. And I've looked at some of the training from this era. Um, and, and while I, you know, I'm, I am in my own way, uh, you know, middle-aged to uh, slightly beyond middle-aged white guy, I, I didn't, um, I wasn't in the work world in the 1960s, but I have had a chance to look at a fair amount of the training from that era. And there were basically two approaches. The, the most common was essentially a compliance lecture. Let's bring everyone into a room for four hours, tell them the new law, or new laws, plus the company policies, plus a lot of do's and don'ts, and maybe a couple of case studies. Uh, we do this once, we check off the box, and, uh, and we move on. The other kind of diversity training was extremely confrontational, uh, very emotional. 
and I'm sorry to say, in many cases, kind of racist itself. Uh, it kind of went like this. Okay, everybody, uh, read read the pages. We want you to fill in the blanks. Uh, black people are blank. White people are blank. Asians are blank. Now, after you're filling all of those out, now share your results so we can all tell you what a racist piece of garbage you are. Uh, it's, a little, you know, it's a little hyperbole, but um, yes, honestly, if you're familiar with the office sitcoms diversity day training in the 60s, sometimes it wasn't too far off from that. So the, the actual efficacy of the training wasn't always that great in, in, in the 60s. Um, you know, driven by more by, by, by passion and fear than by you know, actual research into what, what ultimately um, uh, is effective in changing behaviors and, and mindsets. Now, with that said, in the 70s, the workplace diversity training landscape definitely evolved. Um, there were marches and protests and intense political activism focused on women's rights, uh, racial and gender diversity in the workplace was expanding rapidly. There was a period of intense government enforcement of the Civil Rights Act, particularly sex or gender discrimination against women. Um, but at the same time, we should not forget that um, the Equal Rights Amendment was not ratified at the time. Um, in the early 70s, federal agencies took the first step toward uh, what I would call modern day diversity training and by the end of 1971, the Social Security Administration had enrolled over 50,000 employees through racial bias training. Uh, corporations followed suit, and over the next five years, they began offering anti-bias training to their employees on a large scale, so that by 1976, 60% of large companies were offering equal opportunity training of some kind. Affirmative action became widespread, and while this was progress, it was still also true that the underlying corporate driver for the training was compliance and avoidance of costly sanctions. And the actual training methodology was shifting with a lot of research being conducted regarding what was and was not effective in shifting behaviors and mindsets. Um, so then moving into the 80s, um, at this point, affirmative action was at its height. And Many companies utilized independent diversity professionals to provide programs to help increase the numbers of African-Americans and women employees. Many organizations still utilized diversity training to safeguard against civil rights lawsuits. And much of the training focused primarily on black and white racial issues and, and sexism. But there was a growing attention given to discrimination based on sexual orientation. But still little or no attention was given to Latino, uh, Asian, age discrimination, or people with disabilities. And the business case in those days emphasized diversity as kind of doing the right thing, as opposed to uh, being a, a true business imperative, being a true business driver. Uh, it, it, it wasn't viewed as, hey, this is what drives creativity. This is what drives synergy. Uh, this is how we include everyone to get better ideas, to get better innovation. It was simply more from a, from a moral standpoint, we're gonna do this to do the right thing. Um, also in the 80s, this was when the higher education sector started offering diversity courses in the general education curricula. 
many professors began to interweave cultural differences into developmental, social, and cognitive psychology courses. However, workplace diversity training did stall out a bit in the 80s. Um, President Reagan's deregulation policies that were designed to spur business growth and boost the lagging economy, they also had the effect of removing the compliance stick that had motivated many company diversity initiatives. And the EEOC, under Clarence Thomas now in the 80s, began to de-emphasize compliance agreements that had included goals and timetables for increasing representation of underrepresented groups um, and to allow employers a little more leeway. Um, the result, though, was less of a push to diversify. And the training became a line item that could be reduced as part of cost-cutting efforts in an era when offshore competition was heating up. So, so there was kind of a, a, a push and pull related to diversity training in the 80s. And at this point, those companies that continued to push diversity training, they shifted their strategy because it wasn't as compliance driven. There wasn't as much of a fear of, of, of government intervention. So the companies that were advocating for diversity training, they aimed to provide content that would help women and people of color assimilate into the existing corporate cultures based on the assumption that these new people in the corporate world were less prepared because they had not yet developed the necessary managerial skills to be effective managers. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just observing that when I look at diversity training from that period of time, it seems to be more about, hey, we'll help them uh, develop uh, skills and capabilities to fill their gaps. Um, so it was more about training them and less about facilitating change in the majority. At least I, I see this in some of the, the, the programs and materials uh, from that time. And then we move into the 90s. And I'll, I'll accelerate this a, a bit here. So we're not going to go you know, decade by decade. Right? But we move into the 90s and we see, do see another shift. First of all, in the 90s, the actual demographic makeup of the workforce was beginning a huge shift. Baby boomer retirements, uh, increased immigration, um, the uh, entrance of more women and ethnic minorities into the workforce meant that workforce diversity was becoming a fact of life for organizations. It was not just a government-driven mandate. The corporate world now, whether the government was involved or not, the corporate world had to pay real attention to how having different backgrounds and experiences would impact the ability of the dominant group and the new minority groups to work together effectively. And there was significant expansion and variety of diversity training initiatives to focus on barriers to inclusion for other identity groups uh, from ability difference, uh, ethnic, religious, gay, lesbian, and other worldviews. All of this began to appear in workforce education and training materials and programs at that time. And, and from there in the 90s, we transitioned into the, the 2000s and, and really the first two decades of the new millennia. And I have to say, um, there was certainly progress in the first 20 years uh, of the 2010s up to 2020. Um, but for that 20-ish year period, um, 
there was slow incremental development and, and more of a reaction to the reality that the workforce was evolving, the workforce was changing. But what was also changing at, at, at that time was our technology enabled workforce. So diversity training in those first two decades of the, of the 2000s made a huge shift toward leveraging e-learning. And e-learning became the primary vehicle for receiving your annual sexual harassment training, your annual uh, uh, diversity sensitivity training. And um, the good news is uh, far more people were exposed to diversity training in those two decades. The, the bad news is the training itself became less, um, uh, um, uh, less personal, less, less engaging, and, and the intent of the visual isn't so much going nowhere, but it doesn't seem like there was a huge amount of progress. It was every year we, we check out the box. We do our anti-harassment you know, training. We do our training. And, and um, we kind of reached a bit of a, a, a place where there were other things to think about. There were other priorities. And this in conjunction with the fact that with new technology, the overall flow of work was increasing. So we were exposed, not just in the workplace, but we were exposed in our entire lives through social media and other elements to lots of other messaging related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it was no longer just the workplace environment that was delivering our quote unquote training. It was media over, overall. And having talked to and uh, had conversations with a fair number of diversity professionals who were in the workforce at that time, I will say one of the overarching themes of my conversations with them was that we continue to do this, and yet our employee engagement scores don't change. People are still unhappy. Uh, in fact, uh, things were trending slightly downward or dramatically downward. And in fact, if you if you combine uh, to get to this graph, I combined four different employee engagement surveys over the last twenty years. And no matter how much uh, was poured into uh, diversity training, engagement training, uh, uh, inclusion development, inclusion training employees, it seems, were consistently feeling less and less and less engaged and included in the workplace. And when I also had these conversations with, with the folks who are responsible or were responsible uh, in those first two decades of the 2000s, um, a lot of them tell me they felt alone. They didn't have uh, a lot of colleagues that they could turn to that they could go to. There was a sense of, okay, we've kind of, we've landed in a place now where we know what diversity training is. We know what sexual harassment training is. We know the do's, we know the don'ts, we know. So we, we all kind of know this and yet we get retrained every year. So sometimes it felt like Groundhog Day. All right, it's January. Let's get through all of our you know annual compliance training and let's do that again and again. And I have had conversations with some um, HR professionals who've said, 
um, they kind of lost their mojo during some of those years because it it did start to feel like Groundhog Day. Um, not that there wasn't progress, not that there wasn't good work done, not that the work wasn't important. Um, but then things did change in May of 2020 um, with George Floyd's death, with George Floyd's murder, and with all of the reaction and riots that sprang from George Floyd's murder, um, something dramatically shifted in the corporate diversity training landscape. The first thing that shifted dramatically was the willingness of large companies to make huge commitments regarding what they were going to do in this space. So you suddenly had postings for chief diversity officers, chief equity officers, chief equality officers. Lots and lots of people were hired um, in, in the aftermath of those George Floyd riots. Lots of uh, companies made huge financial commitments, huge investments in um, uh, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm reading the, the the chat as well. I'm I'm not sure if someone has a challenge with my visuals. I, I apologize if you've got some challenge with the visuals. I'm not um, so. Um, and what I'm going to try to do is. I'm going to ignore the chats for a bit because I, I can't edit myself and deliver this at exactly the same time. The point that I'm trying to make is the uh, the intense shift from the corporate world into willingness to invest back. There was a, a, a palpable energy that sprang from this. And I view that as uh, the, the, the George Floyd aftermath was, in fact, wave two of, of diversity training where there was a reinvestment, there was a re-intensity, and there was a lot of activity and commitment and, and a lot of uh, high-minded and fantastically sounding uh, messages coming from uh, uh, major corporations uh, throughout the world. And, uh, and when I talk about wave three, DEI, um, I can't really point to a particular place in time or point in time when um, uh, the change occurred or when thir the third wave DEI started. I don't think there is one particular point in time. I just noticed in the last six months, maybe eight months, um, suddenly the intensity, uh, the investments, um, even the positions. I've, I've talked to uh, uh, friends and acquaintances who, um, who have been laid off, who were in uh, chief diversity officer positions or, or, or diversity leadership positions. And uh, I've had situations where friends have moved from one organization to, the, to another, and then their old position wasn't replaced. It was viewed as an opportunity to scale that position down. So it does seem to me that corporate investments in DEI are scaling back. The intensity in DEI is, is scaling back. And, um, and ultimately, something is happening in this third wave where we're seeing an expansion of focus beyond, you know, beyond race, beyond gender, beyond sexual orientation. We're seeing a, a, a view more toward the full uh, diversity of humanity. 
So while we're trying to do more and create a broader shift in mindsets, we're actually seeing lower investments. And here are some of the, when I, when I talk to organizations about what they're seeing in their employees and what they're, what they're experiencing with their leaders, what employees are telling us in this third wave is they want more. They want more empathy from their leadership. Uh, they, they want more growth opportunities. Employees are looking for uh, a high growth trajectory from the very beginning. They're not willing to put in 10 years or 20 years uh, before they get their first significant promotion. They want their first significant promotion within months. I mean, they, 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 ha they have a much tighter timeline expectation. Um, employees are looking for a very fair work slash reward contract. And whatever the you know your definition or their definition of fairness is, it's a word that they're using a lot. They want a fair uh, reward for the work that's being done. They are rejecting anything that's being perceived as menial or mundane work. Uh, so if the work isn't linked to some important purpose or isn't linked into an important mission of the business, it's hard to find employees who are willing to do or want to do that mundane work. And we've been hearing about work-life balance for a long time, for decades, but there has a been a shift that's occurred where it's no longer just something that you talk about perhaps after you've been hired and you wait six months and then you uh, you get a little overworked and you begin to have you know uh, gentle conversations about the need for work-life balance. It's now part of the interview process. The, the, the interviewees are bringing this up. The interviewees want to know um, that um, uh, the company is committed to work-life balance. Um, Well-being and mental health is something that employees are much more comfortable talking about now than they were perhaps a decade or two ago. So there is, there is a big shift that's occurring in terms of employee expectations within their organizations. And yet when I talk to leaders, leaders will tell me, all right, so I, I'm caught in this vice grip because all of my old accountabilities still exist. I'm still uh, in, I'm still expected to produce the same business results. I'm still expected to produce the same outcomes. And yet, while I'm doing that, I'm also expected to cultivate the engagement of all of my employees. I'm expected to be an agile thinker. I'm expected to lead with inclusion and involve everybody in the conversation and the culture of the organization. I'm expected to be emotionally effective, to create psychological safety. I'm expected to be a different kind of person while also producing the results that I was all, always uh, intended to produce or, or, or required to produce. And there is a huge amount of stress on leaders today um, when it comes to this third wave of DEI. Uh, and I, I'm not saying I have some huge, fantastic answer to this. What I'm saying is, I have conversations about these stressors uh, every single week with either employees about their expectations or with leaders about the pressures that they, they are under. And, and I see a, a number of things uh, shifting in the diversity training landscape. While it's still important to address racial diversity, gender issues, sexual orientation issues, more and more what I'm seeing is uh, programs that look at the entire 
realm of human diversity, uh, from neurodiversity to family status, ensuring that those employees who have large families are, are attended to, and those employees who have no families, those who employees who are planning families, those employees who are planning to never have uh, children, all, all of those differences are, are being incorporated into the, the fuller context, the full dimension of human diversity, looking at people's backgrounds, looking introverts versus extroverts, looking at uh, this, this entire range, which again, can start to feel overwhelming. And one of the undercurrents of this is having uh, employees who are within some of those original groups start to wonder, well, are we losing focus on the importance of racial inclusion? Are we losing focus on the importance of gender equity? Are we losing focus on the importance of sexual orientation, uh, equity and inclusion? And, and it's a fair question. If As we expand the aperture to include all of these variations, I had an employee a couple of weeks ago say to me, well, if in the end we are all uh, you know, part of the inclusive message, then does that water down the original core messages that we were trying to deliver? And it's a fair question. I don't have an answer. I just know that I'm seeing this expansion of the overall messaging related to diversity and inclusion. I'm also seeing when I talk to organizations about their leadership models and their leadership competency models, many organizations are taking another look at their classic leadership competency model and determining that there does need to be an evolution. If we're looking for a different kind of le leader, if we have a different kind of organization, if we have a different kind of employee, um, inclusivity is becoming a core leadership competency. And, and so if we just focus in on inclusive inclusivity for a moment, um, inclusivity can mean a lot of things. It's one of those terms that you know, everybody can create their own sort of mental definition of what inclusivity is. But just basing uh, my point of view on the conversations that I've been having for the last year and a half to two years, there seem to be six critical core elements of an inclusive leader. And it does begin with self-awareness, becoming aware of one's own uh, tendencies toward biases and not just racial, gender, gender, sexual orientation bias, but our entire uh, sense of, you know, of, of blind spots that can ultimately lead us down you know, uh, erroneous paths. So leaders who take the time to question their own thinking, to question their own point of view, and that it's not a one and done, that it's an ongoing process. Um, it is a challenge because we want leaders to be confident, but we also want them to be self-questioning. We want leaders to have a strong point of view, but we want them to be flexible in their strong point of view and be open to the, um, the perspectives of others. So I think we are in the process in this, again, what I call third wave of DEI, figuring this out. How do we handle these natural tensions between uh, being, being confident and also being humble and, and open? Um, and what do we mean by leadership empathy? Um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done and there's still a lot of conversations to be had regarding uh, strong empathetic leadership that does create direction, that does drive a vision, 
that does move an organization forward and at the same time has a strong sense of empathy for everyone within that organization and all of the other stakeholders as well, including, including customers, including investors, everyone. Um, the other elements I see in inclusive leadership are what I call congruent communication, meaning um, virtually the opposite of one and done communication. Um, what I see in high-performing inclusive leaders is that their inclusive leadership message is not just what they say. And it's not just a one-time message that they send out or once a quarter message or once a year message. It's what they say and what they do. So inclusive leaders are those leaders who on in web meetings, when they have their team in a web meeting, they don't just attend to an individual person's point of view. Um, they, they understand that it's important that they pull everyone into the conversations that they pull everyone into the decisions that they do in the in their manner of operating day in and day out they act inclusively they don't just talk inclusively so that's what i mean by congruent communication that your actions are congruent with your words day in and day out not just a one time event but day in and day out throughout your your work day throughout your work world what i mean by dimensional intelligence is going back when we talk about the full dimension of humanity to be an effective leader today to be an inclusive leader today you do have to have at least a baseline understanding when we talk about neuro neurodiversity what does that mean a, a, a an inclusive leader has to have an understanding of the full range of human dimension and understand what is different about uh, individuals who have made the choice to never have children themselves versus what is different about individuals who've had a military background versus individuals who've had a non nonprofit background versus individuals within in various cultures. And it can be overwhelming. And we're not asking any particular leader to instantly become fully educated on every culture, every difference, every situation. But over time, in an ongoing continuous learning effort, leaders do have to develop dimensional intelligence to be and, and not expect their employees to do all the education for them. You can't expect your employees to come to you to say, hey, look, um, I know you're not familiar with my culture or you're not familiar with my heritage. Let me educate you. That's really not fair to the employees as well. So leaders do have to take this on as a role uh, in terms of developing that full dimensional intelligence over time. And then the final two elements of these inclusive leadership competencies, um, we know that we're not always going to get it right. And leaders who are able to adapt and be resilient and not be worried about occasionally making missteps, not be worried about occasionally not phrasing something exactly in the right way or in the way that won't uh, in some, some way trigger someone else or offend someone else. Leaders have to know that they will in this journey make mistakes their teams will in this journey make mistakes and having that ability to be resilient, to learn, to adapt is an incredible, important part of being an inclusive leader. Because as we all head down this journey, um, we're all figuring it out together. And I do believe then the final competency for an inclusive leader is what we call synergistic engagement. And I think this is ultimately the reason why businesses will support highly inclusive leaders because 
if you can, in fact, synergize the inputs of all of your employees, of your entire team, if you can, in fact, create a space where the ideas, the backgrounds, the perspectives, the points of view of all employees have a space, um, is, is the ultimate key to why business should care about this. There is a business imperative to inclusive leadership. So uh, again, mastering that and figuring out how do I do all of these other things that we've been talking about while also leveraging inclusion to drive business results through greater innovation and synergy. It's, it's important because if we don't get that right, then I don't think it's gonna stick and it's not gonna become a permanent part of the way businesses are operating. So with that, I'm gonna step off of my soapbox for a second. Um, because there are five things I'm seeing that are not so great right now in this third wave. Um, and, and third wave may not be the exact right way to phrase it, but that's my, my phrase. Um, I am definitely seeing a tightening of budgets committed to DEI initiatives. Now, this is typically the, the budget tightening is, is kind of kept you know hush-hush. Nobody is, is announcing, nobody's sending out uh, uh, press releases saying, hey, we've reduced our commitment in this area by you know, X millions of dollars. Instead, what's happening is when there are opportunities to replace a chief diversity officer with a director of diversity because someone has moved on, or when there are other opportunities that go kind of below the radar to reduce DEI budgets, I'm seeing organizations uh, begin to take those opportunities. Now it's not huge, there's not a huge contraction yet, but I've definitely in the last six months seen these contractions. At the same time, when I talk to DEI leaders about the scope of their responsibilities, there is an expanded mandate. So they're being asked to do more with less. They're being asked to have more of a business impact, but, you know, but can you do it on a reduced budget or can you do it with, 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 with fewer resources? we're seeing tension between DEI constituents. Meaning uh, if, if, if I'm an African-American employee and I see resources invested in these various groups, these various initiatives, does it feel like my needs, my issues, my priorities are getting lost in the mix? So there is a tension between DEI con constituents and there, I don't believe there's a, a right or wrong answer. I'm just acknowledging that that tension exists, and we have to be we have to attend to that attention and uh, and keep it, I guess, at our, the forefront of our thinking as we're looking at uh, areas where we invest our time, our energy, our, our resources. In some cases, we are seeing a bit of DEI burnout. We are seeing our organizations and individuals who feel like, okay, we we've done that. We um, there isn't anything new under the sun. And we're also starting to see some DEI detractors gaining ground. I think primarily, because if I back up here, if our inclusive leaders aren't able to show tangible business results from their, their inclusive approach to leadership, if they aren't able to show the benefits of synergistic engagement with their employees, eventually the question is going to be asked, 
So what's in it for us? If we're going to continue to maintain our investments, continue to maintain our budgets, um, there's got to be a tangible business impact. There have to be metrics that we can look to to say, uh, here is the case. Here's the absolute case for, for DEI and inclusive leadership in our organization. So I do think these are brutal realities that we, we, we as DEI folks are going to have to continue to think through and ultimately solve. Um, but the good news within that, I, I don't want to end on a, on a bad note. So the good news is authentic inclusion is, in fact, becoming a business imperative. Um, there are many organizations that I talk to who, in fact, are leading inclusively, are leading with an inclusive message, with an expanded message of, of inclusivity. There are many organizations who are very consciously not reducing their DEI budgets, who are who are tempted and are and and are debating and discussing and ultimately absolutely staying true to their the original intent of the the commitments that they made, uh, you know, in the wake of uh, the George Floyd murder and what followed that. So there is a lot of good news in this third wave DEI, but I think we can't afford to just ignore the brutal reality. In fact, we have to think through how do we address the brutal reality? Uh, because if we don't do it, it's gonna be done for us uh, reactively. So with that, I'm going to pause here for a moment and I'm gonna, um, if, you have, if you have questions or comments, if, particularly if it's something that you want me to respond to right now, because the, the chat is, a, um, is kind of flowing uh, rapidly, so I'm going to look at the chat, but I'm going to look at the questions as well. If you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to respond to any of those before we wrap up. Not necessarily seeing any questions. Let me just quickly scroll through the, the chats here. Um, <laughs> So not seeing any let's look toward that. Um, not seeing any questions. So um, I'll share a couple of final thoughts and then we will wrap up. As I said, I have these conversations um, every week, uh, at least two or three conversations with individuals who are in the trenches. They are they are actively you know within DEI initiatives within their organizations. Um, what does Dan believe organizations should be doing right now? What is most immediate? So I'll give you my instinctive answer to that because um, I, I tend to back away from what organizations should be doing right now and focus it on what should leaders be doing right now? Because I think sometimes what happens is when we talk about organizational issues, organizational mandates, it's it's very easy for individual leaders to let themselves off the hook. Um, so I guess if there's any one thing that organizations should be doing right now is is, is ensuring that inclusive le leadership is part of their leadership messaging. I would say, number one, look to your existing leadership competency model as an organization and ask yourself, is inclusion 
viewed as a core leadership competency. However, it's reflected. It doesn't even matter matter what your what language you're using exactly, but is is leadership inclusion part of your core competency? And if it's not, then do some work on that competency modeling. To and then once you do that, take a look at your entire organizational structure, your entire organization leadership, because inclusive leadership is not something that just springs up overnight. And it doesn't spring up in your leaders just because you tell them that it's now important to be an inclusive leader. It does require um, not e-learning. It doesn't require delivery of content. It requires engagement and dialogue and facilitation and a, and a willingness to uh, to be vulnerable with leaders and help leaders themselves be vulnerable and acknowledge um, that some of their habits, some of their, t- their their tendencies, and acknowledge that in the past we have we have rewarded and recognized those leaders who drive, who drive people forward, and don't necessarily include others in the discussion, in the dialogue, in the process of making decisions. Um, let's see. I'm looking at the comments here. Your decade by decade breakout down was helpful. It was about social changes that affect the workplace. How do you suggest companies get engaged? I think it starts with the people that you're hiring and and your customers as well. I think we're at a place in our world of work where companies exist as part of society, not as a separate entity over here. The days of of an, an Ayn Randian view of capitalism where companies exist to drive profit. Um, That is still true. I mean, you've got to drive profit in order to exist, in order to continue to exist. But I think where our society is shifting is a view toward corporate entities as a part of our society with responsibilities to our society. And accepting that is is critical and key to being a a senior leader in today's world. Um, I'm seeing a comment here. I work with a leader who has extreme biases in the senior management role. Would you have suggestions on how to get this through as we have had multiple conversations on moving forward to the DEI structure and mindset? Um, Rhiannon, I appreciate the question. And I would say, um, here's what I'm happy to do. I'm easy to find. Find me on LinkedIn. uh, Message me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. And these are the kinds of conversations to have one-on-one because every one of these situations is, is challenging because cracking the code on those individual senior leaders and figuring out what is it really going to take to to crack open this person versus this person. I don't necessarily have any great like generic answers for that. Um, I'm looking at Cheryl's comment or question. Organizations have always been pressed by social factors and changes. How do leaders and should they become more engaged in the social issues that challenge everyone in our real lives? So it's a fantastic question. Because I do believe to be an inclusive leader, an effective inclusive leader, that answers the question that as an effective inclusive leader, you do have to, in fact, step forward into these social issues that are affecting our lives beyond the workplace. Old paradigm, I'm a leader in a business organization over a group of people with responsibilities for that group of people. And when I walk out the door, either in reality or metaphorically, I walk out the door and I can kind of set my work world aside and I can go to my personal world. 
I think a combination of things that have happened in the pandemic, where there's so much work from home occurring, so much remote work occurring, and maybe it's just our societal shift to be an effective leader in today's world. You cannot disconnect yourself from the realities of society. And I think that's a part of the inclusive leadership message as well, that it's not simply uh, a linear, I'll be more inclusive with this team of eight people that report to me. I will be more inclusive with this society that I work within, with this world within I work within. And uh, and it is a new mindset for, for, for leaders. Um, it's an overwhelming mindset for some leaders. I had a conversation with a gentleman two weeks ago. Uh, great guy, you know, on the older end of the spectrum, uh, kind of a classic older white guy. And, and I, I mean that with respect because speaking as an older white guy. Um, and he said to me, you know, for me, it comes down to this. When I was in the world of work and I was growing up in our business, I would have never talked to anyone about my mental health issues. In fact, he said, I didn't even think about my mental health issues myself. He said, it was, it was just not something you ever brought up. And then if you did bring it up, it was you know, when you, you needed some, some serious help in some way. He said, now I can't get people to shut up about their need for mental health days, about their need for bereavement, about their need for a break. And he said, I don't know how to have those conversations. He said, I will be honest with you. It scares me because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to react. I get worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing. And, 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 um, and, and so what I appreciated about his transparency with me was he was acknowledging. I mean, he had the self-awareness to, to recognize he wasn't necessarily judging them. He was saying, I am uncomfortable with this new way of being, with this new way of talking. With this new... But he said to me, I've still got another eight to 10 years left in the workplace. I'm not retiring now. And I want to I want to end strong in this last decade. So I know I've got to figure this out. I'm just not sure how to figure it out. What I loved about it was his willingness to put the question forward, his willingness to be vulnerable, because if you'll do that, and I think it's one of the keys in helping leaders become more inclusive is to help them become a little more vulnerable, a little more willing to say, I don't have all this figured out. I don't have all of the answers. And maybe just that openness itself will start to be part of the answer. Um, da, 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 I'm looking at other comments, questions. Da, da, da. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. We're going to have, um, we've got just a few more minutes. So uh, let's talk about DEI detractors because. Um, the other thing that has shifted in the last 20 years is our societal communication media has now become so um, interconnected uh, with, with social media. Whatever your particular bent may be, whether you are pro-DEI, whether you're anti-DEI, whether you're pro-anything, you can be pro-cooking or anti-cooking, you can be pro-anything or anti-anything. You will very quickly find in social media a large group of people who think exactly the way you think right now. So DEI detractors very quickly find other DEI detractors and very quickly then form uh, their own 
little sub-society, along with you know a, a thousand other uh, sub-societies on virtually every topic uh, in, in existence. And those DEI detractors do gain ground. And it's important, I think, that we not um, ignore them. I think you have to pay attention to their messaging and have to pay attention to their concerns and have to hear them in order to be able to combat them. Uh, and to combat them, I mean that in a respectful way. In order to counter message something, you have to understand the message itself. So um, I would say this tendency for all of us to reside in our own bubbles, it's another thing that an inclusive leader needs to fight. You have to push yourself outside of your bubble. So. I don't know what your nature of you individually has your own information bubble that you, that you reside in. And I would ask you to make a conscious effort to spend a little bit of time outside of your bubble, going into those areas of social media, those areas of the internet, those areas of reading. So don't just read the people who agree with you. Um, I, I'm not going to name any names, but I'm sure you can, you can name the authors who disagree with you, who you, you can't imagine that there are a million people who would buy her book or his his book. Every now and then, pick up one of their books. Every now and then, listen to some of their podcasts. Every now and then, tune into their news station or their radio station and give yourself an immersion. And you have to do it for more than just a single time because what, what happens, I know what happens to me, is I will tune into a podcast and I will have asked myself, how is it that anybody can really want to spend time listening to this particular person or this particular topic. And initially, because it isn't the way I think, I initially reject it and I and I'm, it doesn't provide me with entertainment. It doesn't really inform inform me and I tend to want to shut it down. But I find if I'm willing to listen further to answer the question, what are people hearing? What are people seeing? What is grabbing people about this messaging so that I can get smarter regarding their messaging in order to be smarter at the counter messaging and to do it all with more sense of curiosity than judgment because it's so easy to buy into or to, 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 to fall into the habit of saying, hey, the way I think is, is evolved or the way I think is modern, the way I think is right, is smart. And so this other very different way of thinking, well, it must be wrong and it must be uh, not smart and it must be stupid. So staying in that place of, I'm going to just curiously figure out what's pulling these folks in to the, in, the, in this direction, it makes me much smarter at counter-messaging um, when I do understand the message. And I'm um, seeing the point here or the comment here. I read and engage with people who think nothing like me. I want to learn and always do better. Not one of us has all the answers. I will not, however, engage with trolls and those who are just trying to incite. Yeah, com completely agree, ab absolutely. And, and recognizing the, the, the trolls who actu whose actual intent is to create this, this incitement. Um, yeah, absolutely, you can recognize them and move on from them relatively quickly. So thanks, Trina, for sharing that. With that, I'm looking at uh, the time. I think we are close to ready to conclude. Uh, looking for any final comments or questions. The last thing 
I will share is um, I had a, a conversation with an individual two weeks ago. Uh, no, three. This was three weeks ago. And uh, he had recently made a transition. He'd been in a DEI leadership role for one business. And he, uh, he left that business and he moved and he took on a slightly more senior DEI leadership role for, for another business. And I asked him what motivated his, uh, his transition to, to a new business because I thought he was perfectly happy the way, the way he, uh, where, where he was. Well, he said, our leadership, our DEI leadership in my old business, in their own way, they were sucking all the air out of the room. They had their message, and they were intent on delivering their message with passion. They were, in, and and they really weren't interested in other voices, in other perspectives, even within the DEI bubble, within within our our DEI landscape. He said, "I was looking for a place that would where I could give voice to to my thoughts, my ideas, my perspectives." And he said, "I he said my my senior DEI leader is." very passionate, is, um, is a fantastic person, has a great message, and essentially views his role as spreading his message throughout our organization and views us as the minions who will deliver that message. And he said, the person I was speaking to said, I tried to have a conversation with, about him, with him about how in his own way, he was being exclusionary because he was limited to his passion, his intensity, his, his energy. And he said, it didn't go anywhere. Really, I, I, I didn't get traction with that. And so then I started looking for an organization where I could express my voice. I could express my point of view. And what I thought was fascinating about that was how, what he was really sharing was how easy it is as a leader to become exclusive. And so if you're going to be a truly inclusive leader, it's a never ending challenge. You're, you're, you're combating your own instincts to, uh, you know, to, to, to take control of the message. Inclusion in some ways in the, in the corporate work world doesn't come naturally and it has to be an ongoing effort. I received some interesting feedback from many of the leaders attending that presentation. The most common was, I've been sensing and seeing the same things, just hadn't put such a fine point on it yet. And we've got to frame up our DEI efforts more effectively. If we can't make the business case for DEI as opposed to the social or moral case, if we can't make the business case, then shame on us. Now, with that said, the truth is that there are many organizations leveraging DEI efforts as an integral part of their business success model, and I plan to feature some of those stories in future episodes. Okay, so that's all for today. Whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this program, obviously, I hope that you'll like and share and subscribe to this podcast to be notified when new episodes get posted every Tuesday. In future shows, I'm going to invite leaders who have practical, real-world advice to share. And of course, I invite your questions and comments, which will also guide the direction of future shows. And with that, thank you for listening to Leadership Disrupted.